Section 7 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Faith Ann Gibson, The Rover, Volume 1, Number 17. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 7. Story of an Heiress. I would I were absolute Queen of Britain for the space of one calendar month. No treason to her gracious majesty, whose loyal subject I am. The sole and single act of my, or to speak legally, our queenship, should be to abolish, disperse, and utterly annihilate all fashionable boarding-schools, to send the French governesses home to their millinery, the English ones to asylums, to be supported by the voluntary contributions of all British subjects, who desire with heads and hearts, the pupils home to their respective mammas. But what mamas? Fashionable fine lady mamas. Hey ho! Our right royal scheme is impracticable. Even an absolute queen is like the cat e adage, and must be fain to let I cannot wait upon I would. But wherefore and whence my antipathy to these soidescent mental miseries of Britain's wives and mothers? Because I was trained in their ways, and governed by their laws, until my eighteenth year, and because they sent me forth frivolous and thoughtless, unskilled to find the path to happiness, although I had from nature, beauty, some talent, and quick strong feelings, from fortune, rank, riches, and fashion, doubtful gifts, which embitter woes as often as they heighten bliss. The events which rendered me an heiress were fraught with shame and sorrow. When I was but a helpless, wailing baby, my mother fled her home and child, and was divorced. My only brother, then a wild but high-spirited youth, shocked at his mother's disgrace, and disgusted with the unhappiness of home, absconded and put to sea in a merchant vessel trading to the Mediterranean. The vessel perished, and the crew was never more heard of. My father, whose sole heiress I now was, loved me little, and placed me, when only five years old, at a boarding-school of the highest fashion. Soon after, dying, he directed that I should remain at school until the completion of my eighteenth year, at which early age I was to be emancipated from the control of guardians and teachers, and to enter on the unrestrained possession of my princely inheritance. Here was a perilous destiny. It might have been a high and happy one, had I received that mental, moral, and religious culture due to every rational being, but in especial to those whose wealth and station confer on them extensive social influence. And in what pursuits were spent those precious years that should have moulded my character to stability and dignity? Exclusively in learning to sing, to dance, to play, to talk, and to dress fashionably. I, who was entrusted with the distribution of so large a portion of the nation's wealth, scarcely knew the names or nature of patriotism, of beneficence, of social duty, or moral responsibility. I, who had nothing to do with life but to enjoy it, was unconsciously an exile from the land of thought, a stranger to the hallowing influence of study. My pleasures were all of this noisy world, all drawn from external things. I had no inly springing source of joy. No treasures stored to solace the hidden life. Oh, happy are the children whose infancy reposes on a mother's bosom, whose childhood laughs around her knees and gazes upward into her loving eyes. Home is the garden where the young affections are reared and fostered, till they rise gradually and grandly into the stateliest passions of the human soul. But I was even an alien from the domestic hearth. The flow of gentle feeling in me lay motionless and chill, still as a frozen torrent, yet destined to leap to rushing and impetuous life under the first dissolving rays of passion. But these are the reflections of an altered character, and a maturer age, 
Not such were the feelings with which the young and high-born Augusta Howard entered on the career of fashionable life. I was now eighteen, and I resolved to avail myself abundantly of my legal liberty. I took a splendid residence in town, purchased the companionship of a tarnished widow, and delightedly resigned myself to the intoxication of the triumphs that awaited my entrance on the gay world. I trod the spacious apartments of my mansion with a transported and exultant sense of freedom and independence. I danced along. The mistress of its brilliant revels, song and light and odor, floated around my steps, and my free heart bounded gaily to the beat of martial music. Life seemed a feast, a gorgeous banquet. I, an exempted creature whom no sorrow nor vicissitude could reach, the young and brave, the affluent and noble, strove for my favor as for honor and happiness. Every eye offered homage, every lip was eager to utter praise. Ah, it is something to walk the earth arrayed in beauty, clad in raiment of nature's own glorious form and eye. And what though it be not fadeless? What though the disrobing hands of death must cast it off to darkness and the worm? Is it not something to have been a portion of the spirit of delight, a dispenser of so many of the stray joys that lie scattered about the highways of the world? Surely loveliness is something more than a mere toy, when but to look on it ennobles the gazer, and raises him nearer to truth and heaven. For me, although in the first giddy years of youth I knew not how to prize aright any gift of nature, I yet felt that the joy of being beautiful springs from a warmer and purer source than vanity. Still I prized too highly the potency of personal attractions, when I believed them absolute over the affections. I lived to learn that there are hearts which it cannot purchase. Meanwhile the gloss of novelty grew dim, my keen zest for pleasure began to pall, and the monotony of dissipation grew distasteful to me. The flowery opening of the world's path had been bright and gay, but now it was no longer new, and I began to inquire whither it would lead. I was hourly assailed by the importunities of my noble suitors, but I was in no haste to abridge the triumphal reign of vanity. I was a stranger to the only sentiment that could render marriage attractive to one situated as I was, and I consequently regarded it as an event that would diminish my power and independence. I had, too, considerable acuteness and I believed that many of my most ardent admirers would have been less impassioned had my dowry been less munificent. In this class I was secretly disposed to rank Lord E., the handsomest and most assiduous of the competitors for my heart, hand, and estates. I was quite indifferent to him, and his pleadings gratified no better feelings than vanity, but my coldness seemed only to heighten his ardor, and he had the art of making the world believe that he ranked high in my regard. By his pertinacity and the tyranny of etiquette, I found myself his almost constant partner in the dance, and he neglected no opportunity of exhibiting the deportment of a favoured lover. Reports were constantly circulated of our engagement and approaching union, yet I did not dismiss him from my train. I contented myself with denying any positive encouragement to his pretensions, because, though I did not love him, his society pleased me as well as that of any one else, and I sometimes thought that, should I marry, he deserved reward as much as another. True, there were some young and generous hearts among my suitors, who might perhaps have loved me disinterestedly, who were captivated by the charms of my gaiety, youth, and fresh enjoyment of life. But love cannot always excite love, even in an unoccupied heart, and mine was alike indifferent to all, so that I was in danger of forming the most important decision of my life from motives that ought not to influence the choice of a companion for an hour. But fate, or rather providence, had reserved a painful chastening for my perverted nature. Freed as I was from the ties of kindred or affection, I had no friends through whom death might afflict me, and pecuniary distress could not touch one so high in fortune's favour. 
there was but one entrance through which moral suffering could pass into my soul, and that entrance is soon found. Nothing seems so unlikely as that I should ever nourish an unhappy affection, or know the misery of loving unloved again. Yet even such was the severe discipline destined to exalt and purify my character. I was in the habit of attending the parish church of the fashionable neighborhood in which I resided. I went partly from an idea that it was decorous to do so, but chiefly from custom, and the same craving after crowded assemblies which would have sent me to an auction or a rout. Neither to service or sermon did I ever lend the smallest attention. It was not that I was an unbeliever. No, I neither believed nor doubted, for I never reflected on the matter at all. This infidelity of levity is a thousandfold more demoralizing than the infidelity of misdirected study. Wherever thought is, there is also some goodness, some hope of access to truth. But folly, the cold, the impassive, is well-nigh irreclaimable. Our courtly preachers were cautious not to disturb the slumbering consciences of their hearers, and the spirit of decorum, rather than that of piety, seemed to actuate them in the discharge of their functions. But a new preacher was sent to us. He was indeed a fervent and a true apostle. When he first entered the pulpit, directly opposite to which my pew was situated, I scarcely looked at him, but my ear was soon caught by the solemn harmony of his voice and diction, and I turned toward him my undivided attention. Ah, genius! Then first I knew thee, knew thee in thy brightest form, laboring in thy holiest ministry, robed in beauty and serving truth. It seemed as though my soul had startled from a deep, dead slumber, and was listening in trance to the language of its native heaven. I experienced what the Eastern monarch vainly sought, a new pleasure. For the first time I trembled and glowed under the magic sway of a great mind, for the first time heard lofty thought flowing in music from the lips of him who had embodied and conceived it. Never shall I forget that high and holy strain. It was a noble thing to see that youthful being stand before the mighty of the land, their monitor and moral guide. They, old in years and high in station, the rulers and lawgivers of a great nation, he, devoid of worldly honors and unendowed, save by the energy of his virtuous soul and God-given genius. What moral power was his! What a blessed sphere of usefulness! It was his to wile the wanderer back to virtue by the charms of his eloquent devoutness, to startle the thoughtless by the terrors and the glories of the life to come, to disturb with the awful forethought of death the souls of men who were at peace in their possessions, and lift to immortality the low desires of those who had their hearts and treasures here, nerved by a sublime sense of the sacredness of his mission. He did not spare to smite at sin, lest it should be found sitting in the high places, but his divinely gentle nature taught him that we have all of us one human heart, and that the unerring way to it lies through the generous and tender feelings. Charity and entire affection for his whole human family were the very essence of his moral being, and the saintly fervor of his philanthropy shed a corresponding, though far fainter glow, into the bosoms of his hearers. It is not too much to say that none ever listened to him without becoming, for the time at least, a nobler and more rational creature. And to exert weakly so sacred and benign a power as this, was it not to be a good and faithful server of humanity? For me, virtue and intellect were at once unveiled before me, and they did not pass unhomaged. I imbibed delightedly the grand and exalting sentiments of Christian morality. I had not indeed become at once religious, but, thanks to the natural blessedness and innocence of morning life, I wish to become so, and this is much, for it is the desire of wisdom that bringeth to the everlasting kingdom. I left church, my imagination full of the young divine. 
I longed much to meet him in society, and find whether his manners and conversation would dissolve the spell which his genius had cast upon me. My wish was soon gratified, for his society was much courted, and never among the pretenders to exclusive grace and fashion did I meet a person of such captivating demeanour and endearing modesty, of mental superiority so charmingly veiled as Stephen Trevor. Long after our first acquaintance I expressed my hearty admiration of him with the frankness natural to my disposition. I could perceive that my doing so arrayed against him the envious jealousy of my admirers, and especial of Lord E. They needed not to fear, so long as I could speak of him so unreservedly. The dignity of Trevor's character inspired me with such profound awe that I could never summon courage to offer him a single compliment. But my bearing toward him was more courteous and respectful than it had ever been to any other man of his years. He, however, had little in common with the circle of which I formed a part. He was sometimes among, but never of, us. His selected friends and companions were of a different stamp, and my acquaintance with him was consequently limited to brief and occasional interchanges of conventional courtesy. He knew little of me, but I had perused and reperused his lovely character, and learned from the perusal how to solve the sage's debated question of what is virtue. The Sabbath was now my day of rest and peace and joy. I looked forward to it with the rapture of a child who anticipates a holiday. But it was not the Creator whom I thus joyed to worship. It was before His glorious creature that I bent in almost prostrate idolatry. Yes, the flattered, adored, and haughty heiress, she who had trifled with human hearts as with the baubles of an hour, was now pouring out her first affections and unregarded tribute, won by him who alone had never wooed her favour, to whom her boasted beauty and her boundless wealth were valueless as dust and ashes, and in whose regard the lowliest and homeliest Christian maid was of more esteem than she. Yes, imagination, passion, sensibility, long dormant, now awoke. To what a world of suffering! But if suffering, it was also life, life whose sharpest pangs were worthy and ennobling. Why should I blush to own and shrink from describing the heavenliest feeling of my nature? Why not glory that my spirit turned coldly away from the frivolous and the base, and bowed in reverent homage at the shrine of worth and wisdom and holiness and genius? Yes, it was through my admiration of these great qualities that love won its unimpeded way into the far recesses of my soul. Blessed be nature that gave me strong sympathies, able to struggle up through the trammels of a false and feeble education. Blessed be love, I even its very thorns, for by it I was first led into the sweet and quiet joys of literature, and felt the infinitely growing joys of knowledge, and learned to gaze delightedly upon the changing and immortal face of nature. At first I had not thought Trevor beautiful. This I remember distinctly, or I could not now believe it. For so soon as I had marked the mystic intelligence between the outward aspect and the inward heart, his face became to me even as the face of an angel. His soft dark hair flowed meekly away on either side of forehead where mental power and moral grandeur sat fitly throned. His eyes shone serenely lustrous with the soul's own holy light and the warm benevolence of his bright smile. While he preached, the light from a richly stained oriel window streamed upon his figure, at times shrouding him in such a haze of crimson or golden splendor that he seemed a heaven-sent seraph circled by a visible glory. There was no sorrowful or paining thought blended with the glad beginnings of my love. Earth and sky seemed brighter than before, human faces wore happier smiles, and all living things were girdled by my widening tenderness. I sought out dear poesy, and learnt her sweet low hymns, and chanted them softly to my own glad heart. I held high commune with the mighty of old. 
the men of renown for what but genius can be the interpreter of passion the world weariness had passed away i descried from afar the transient abode of happiness and i resigned myself to the current of events which i hoped would drift me toward it i knew not of the gulf that yawned between there was not perhaps one of my acquaintance who would not have regarded as a debasement my alliance with a poor curate such as trevor and i was as yet so far tainted with their false notions as to interpret his slowness in seeking my intimacy into the timidity of a humble adorer often as i caught his eye fixed steadily upon me i translated his pitying or reproving silentness into the language of admiration to which i was so much better accustomed i had not yet attained to true lover's perfect humbleness i knew not that trevor's unworldliness would reckon a virtue of more account than an estate in a wife's dowry or that he would never think of finding his life's friend in such a giddy fluttering child of folly as i appeared to be as but for my love of him i would have been but i was soon to know the passion's pain and power the wasting restlessness of doubt and fear i soon grew peevish and impatient-hearted as i marked the many occasions of seeking my society which he let pass unheeded i grew weary weary of crowded assemblies where i in vain watched for his face and listened for his voice and when he did come and when he greeted me with his placid and gracious smile i felt the sick chill of hopelessness steal over me as i contrasted his mild indifference with the passionate worship of my own shut and silent heart sometimes i fancied that he was wrapped too high in heavenly contemplation to dream of earthly love his enthusiasm too glowing as it was was so holy so calm but is not enthusiasm ever calm and always holy and does not true insight into the life of things convince us that the loftiest and purest intellects are ever twin-born with the warmest hearts that tenderness and genius are seldom or never divorced when i witnessed trevor's fervent piety and heard his touching eloquence i felt that they both sprang from the pure depths of an affectionate heart i knew that he would love loftily holily and for ever but i feared alas alas that i could never be the blessed object of his love i had found the only human being who could call forth the latent energies and affections of my soul but his eye was averted and i had no space in his thought i knew the firm and steady character on which my weak and turbulent nature could have cast itself so fondly for support but it had no sympathy with mine i saw the haven in which my heart would fain have set up its everlasting rest but it rejected me sometimes the thought would arise that could he know of my devotional attachment he would not fail to yield a rich return but could the raising of an eyelash have gained his love at the risk of revealing my own the revealment would not have been made i would have rejected his regard if it sprang from such a source this was not pride nor prejudice nor education it is the very soul and centre of a woman's being i was conscious that my face was but too apt to betray my thought and i was terrified lest any one should detect my preference for trevor lord e alone suspected it his jealous eyes were for ever riveted upon my countenance and he alone read aright my wandering vacant eye and changing cheek his shrewdness had long been aware of the impassioned temperament that lurked beneath my sportive manners and he believed me very capable of lavishing my fortune and affections upon one of nature's noblemen a prodigality which he was determined if possible to prevent he did not dare openly to slander the high character of trevor but he had recourse to the sneers and petty brands which calumny do use in hopes of depreciating him in my estimation when he saw with what ineffable scorn i smiled upon such attempts he artfully insinuated that my partiality was known and he believed to be generally discouraged by trevor himself but at the same time professed his own disbelief of anything so preposterous and in every way so derogatory to me this was entirely false 
and I thought it so, but the bare imagination of such an indignity caused me to treat Trevor with a haughty coldness well calculated to convict me of impertinent caprice. These, however, were only the feelings that predominated when I was in society. They partook of its pettiness and turbulence, but in solitude and in the hour of prayer I felt my undeservings and knew how immeasurably high Trevor ranked above me. One Sunday Trevor was absent from church, and his place was filled by a dull and drowsy preacher. My imagination framed a thousand reasons for so unusual an absence. He might be removed to another charge, gone without a word of parting or preparation, or he might be ill and dying. My worst conjecture had scarcely erred. Pestilence had caught him in his merciful visits to the dwellings of disease and want, and he lay in imminent danger of death. Oh, what I would not then have given for a right to tend him! Never in his proud and happy days did I so passionately wish to be his sister, his betrothed, his wife, or anything that could be virtuously his. Had I been empress of the world, I would have bartered my crown and sceptre for the tearful and unquiet happiness of watching by his sick couch. I envied even the hireling nurses who should smooth his pillow and read his asking eye and guard his feverish slumber. Poets have celebrated woman's heroism in braving plague or pestilence for those she loves, but it asks none. To do so is but to use a dear and enviable privilege. Heroism and fortitude are for her who loves, yet dares not approach to share or lessen the danger of the loved. Accustomed as I was to conceal my feelings, it was yet a hard task to mask my anguish from eyes quickened by jealousy and suspicion. I dared not absent myself from the haunts of dissipation, lest it should be said that I cared more for the danger of a good man than the heartless idlers whose ridicule I dreaded. I rose from a pillow deluged with salt tears, and bound my aching temples with red rose wreaths. I danced when I would fain have knelt to heaven in frantic supplications for that precious life. I laughed with my lips when the natural language of my heart would have been moans, sorrowful and many. Every day I, like any other slight acquaintance, sent a servant to make complimentary inquiries concerning Trevor's health. One day, in answer to my message, my servant brought me intelligence that the crisis of the fever had arrived, and that his fate would that night be decided. It was added, too, that the physicians feared the worst. That evening I found it impossible to continue the struggle between the careless seeming and the breaking heart. I shut myself into my own apartment, and gave free course to sorrow. I fled to prayer, and with incoherent and passionate beseechings implored that the just man might live, even though I were never more to see him. I read over the church service, as I read recalling every intonation of that venerated voice, now spent in the ravings of delirium, perhaps soon to be hushed in death. I searched out the texts of scripture on which he used to dwell, and while I pondered on the awful event which the night might bring forth, a sudden impulse of superstition seized me. I resolved to seek from the sacred book an omen of the morrow's issue, and opening it at hazard, determined to regard the first verse that should present itself as the oracle of destiny. The words that met my eyes were appallingly appropriate. He pleased God and was beloved, and living among sinners he was translated. He was taken away, lest wickedness should alter his understanding, or deceit beguile his soul. Being made perfect in a short space, he fulfilled a long time. These awful words smote me like the fiat of doom. A wild, sad yearning to look even upon the walls that enclosed him seized me, and with some difficulty, eluding the observation of my domestics, I walked toward Trevor's house unattended and unsheltered. Through darkness and driving rain, streets over which I had often been borne in triumph and in joy, I now trod on foot, in tears and alone, the pilgrim of grief and love. I reached Trevor's house, and stood on the threshold he so often crossed on his angel errands of goodwill to man. 
and which he might never more pass but as a journeyer to the grave oh for one last look of his living breathing form and there had been times and hours now fled for ever when i might have touched his hand met his eye and won his kindly smile and i had swept past him with a haughty seeming and hypocritical coldness which were nothing to him then or now but they were much to my remorseful memory convulsive throbbing shook my frame and i had raised the knocker in the purpose of inquiring whether he still lived when the ever-haunting fear of detection restrained me i passed to the other side from which i could see the closely curtained windows of the patient's chamber and could discern by the faint light within the gliding forms of his attendants long i paced the dark and silent street gazing upon the walls that held all that i prized on earth pouring out my heart like water unto one who in leaving the world would cast back no regretful thought on me one on whom the ponderous tomb might shortly close and shut me out into the void and dreary world with my unregarded love and my unpitied weeping but morning brought unhoped joy trevor lived would live my prayer had ascended after his recovery he visited all his acquaintance and me among the rest i now met him for the first time freed from the prying observation of others and this together with the joy of seeing him after so painful an absence imparted a cordiality to my manner which seemed to fill him with a pleased surprise but much as i desired to please him i found it impossible to make any effort toward doing so my powers of conversation were utterly paralyzed and though he stayed a considerable time i feared he must think me a most vapid and unintelligent being hitherto i had not seen trevor pay marked attention to any woman but one evening he came to a concert accompanied by a matron and a young lady both strangers to me the latter a fair and interesting but not strikingly beautiful girl trevor and she seemed to be on intimate and even affectionate terms i learned her name it was not his she was not his sister i began to know the tortures of jealousy next evening i was at a ball trevor was not there we were dancing the quadrille of la pastorelle and i was standing alone at that part where the lady's own and opposite partners advanced to meet her when i heard a lady near me say to another so mr trevor and miss are to be married immediately this knell of my happiness rung out amid the sounds of music and laughter the dancers opposite struck with the blanched and spectral hue of my complexion cried out at once what is the matter miss howard you are ill but with a strong proud effort i replied that i was perfectly well danced through my part and then stood beside lord e who was as usual my partner the ladies were still engaged in the same conversation he goes to devonshire next week for change of air after his long illness he is to remain some time on a visit at her father's house i understand it is a long engagement lord e heard these words and guessed at once the cause of my sudden pallor i saw that he did and resolved to defy his penetration never had i been so wildly gay never excited so much admiration as on that miserable evening the recklessness of despair bewildered me and in a sort of mad conspiracy with fate against my own happiness i gave my irrevocable promise to be the wife of lord e a double bar was thus placed between me and the most perfect of god's creatures he had selected one doubtless worthy of him with whom to tread virtue's ways of pleasantness and paths of peace while i linked in a dull bond with one whom i neither loved nor hated must pursue the weary round of an existence without aim or duty or affection I was but nineteen and happiness was over hope the life of life was dead and the future imagination's wide domain nothing but one dim and desolate expanse lord e made the most ostentatious preparations for our approaching union which he took care should be publicly known so that i was congratulated upon it by my acquaintance and among the rest by trevor himself 
but the more I reflected, the more I loathed the thought of marrying Lord E. He could not be blind to my reluctance, but his avarice and vanity were both interested in the fulfillment of my promise. To a man who had desired my love, my unwillingness to fulfill the contract would have been a sufficient cause for dissolving it. But Lord E. had wooed my wealth, and I had promised it to him. How, then, could I retract? Gladly, indeed, would I have given half my fortune in ransom of my rash pledge, but such a barter was impossible, and I saw no means of escaping the tolls which my own folly had woven around me. One day, while I was revolving these bitter thoughts and awaiting the infliction of a visit from Lord E., a letter in a strange hand was delivered to me. It ran thus. My dear Augusta, did you ever hear of a wild youth? Your brother, who was supposed to have been lost at sea when you were a baby? I am that brother. I fear I dare no longer say that youth. I have passed through as many adventures as would rig out ten modern novels, but which would be out of place in this little brotherly epistle. At last, however, I was seized with a strange fit of homesickness, and coming to England to recover, I find my pretty little sister a wit, a beauty, and heiress of my heritage. I understand, and you are doubtless also aware, that my father never gave up all hope of my return, and that by his will I am entitled to all his property, except a paltry portion of ten thousand pounds for you. But I have seen you, my dear girl, and I like you vastly, so that you may be sure I shall not limit your portion as my father did. I candidly confess that I doubt whether I may be able legally to prove my title, though my old nurse, who lives with you, and with whom I have had an interview, denies me easily. I shall visit you, however, and I am sure when you compare me with my father's portrait, you will acknowledge me to be your living brother, Henry Howard. I was well aware of the clause in my father's will to which the writer alluded, but it had always seemed to me and to my guardians a mere dead letter. Some time before I might have grieved at the prospect of losing my wealth. Now it filled me with joy, as affording a hope of release from Lord E. I flew to the nurse, and found her ready to swear to the stranger's identity with the lost Henry Howard. I seized my pen joyfully, and addressed to him a few hasty lines. My dear brother, if you be indeed my brother, you shall only need to prove your title to my own heart. My sense of justice, and not the mandate of the law, shall restore your inheritance to you. As to my portion, I shall accept of nothing but that which is legally mine, until I know that I shall require it, or whether I can love you well enough to be your debtor. I had scarcely dispatched this billet when Lord E. was announced. I received him with unwanted gaiety, for I was charmed to be the first from whom he should hear of my altered circumstances. I longed to take his sordid spirit by surprise, and break triumphantly and at once from his abhorred thraldom. He was delighted with my unusual affability, and was more than ever prodigal of his adorable Augustus, etc., more than ever ardent in his vows of unchangeable love. I maliciously drew him on, asking with a soft Lydia languish air whether he could still love me, should any mischance deprive me of my fortune. Oh, what a question! He could imagine no happier lot than to live with me in a cottage upon dry bread and love, sighs and roses. I professed my satisfaction, and congratulating him on such a brilliant opportunity of proving his disinterestedness, related what had occurred. To me it was most amusing to witness, first his incredulity, then his blank dismay, and lastly his languid professions of constancy, ludicrously mingled with stammering complaints of his own embarrassed circumstances, which would prevent his obeying the dictates of affection by urging his immediate union. A short postponement would now be necessary, etc., etc. At least, raising his looks to mine, he met my mocking and derisive smile, and saw the joy that danced in my eyes. He thereupon thought proper to discover that I had never loved him, and found it convenient to be mightily indignant thereat. I nodded assent to his sapient conjecture, and, drawing my harp toward me, sang with mock pathos the first line of 
for the lack of gold he's left me oh though a release from our engagement was now desirable to him he was deeply mortified at the manner of it and making me a sulky bow he departed while i trailed forth in merrier measure o oh, ladies beware of a false young knight who loves and who rides away so ended lord e s everlasting constancy my brother's return and lord e s consequent desertion were soon known to the world and a dangerous illness with which i was at this time seized was generally ascribed to these causes but far other were my thoughts i looked back with thankfulness on my deliverance from the danger of marrying a man so worthless as lord e had proved and though the means of beneficence and enjoyment were diminished i looked forward to a more happy and useful life than i had hitherto led i had too proud resolves of vanquishing my predilection for trevor but a passion based upon virtue is so indestructible and the youthful heart clings with such a fond tenacity even to its defeated hopes that i could not forego the desire of earning at least his society and friendship i could not conceal from myself that his passionless esteem would be dearer to me than the undivided homage of a hundred hearts he had been in devonshire during my illness but returned before i had recovered my supposed misfortunes were a sufficient passport to his kindness and he who had been reserved and distant in the days of my prosperity was all assiduity in the season of sickness and reverse of fortune every day during my convalesce he made me a long visit and every day augmented my delight in his society and unrivalled conversation his visits were those of a christian pastor and in that paternal character he one day expressed his approbation of the cheerful fortitude with which i had sustained such trying misfortunes i could not bear that he should think i ever loved lord e for i saw that it was to him he chiefly alluded and i impetuously protested that i had ever been indifferent to him and considered my release a blessing this avowal seemed to establish a more intimate friendship and confidence between us in the course of which i learned that it was trevor's brother a devonshire country gentleman and not himself who was engaged to miss the lady whom i had seen with him at the concert trevor's visits which had commenced in compassionate kindness toward me were now continued for his own gratification and before one brief and happy month had passed away i had won the first love of his warm and holy heart and knew myself his chosen one his companion through time and through eternity the long sought was found the long loved was my lover in describing the origin and progress of his regard trevor admitted that his former intentional avoidance of my society was the result of a prepossession which he feared to indulge partly from a belief in the report of my engagement to lord e but chiefly from an opinion that my education and habits must have rendered my character uncongenial to his i too had my confidings to make but though i shed blissful tears upon the bosom of my dear confessor when owning my past errors and frivolity i did not acknowledge that my affection had preceded his own and was many months his wedded wife before he learnt to guess how long and hopelessly he had been beloved how little do we know of each other's joys or sorrows when on the first sunday after my recovery i sat in my accustomed place in church there was not perhaps one of my acquaintance who did not consider me an object of compassion they did not know the bright reversal of my doom they could not believe that i was the happiest creature who trod the earth nor imagine the overswelling tenderness with which i listened to the eloquent preacher and turned from him to look upon my wan and wasted hand where sparkled the ring of our betrothment as if to assure my throbbing heart that happiness so perfect was not a dream since then years have passed many and full of blessings the inheritance whose timely loss gained me my precious stephen has reverted to our duteous children who know how to use it better than did their mother in her days of thoughtlessness and pride they exemplify the good parent's blessed power to make his children virtuous as himself and when i see them in turn exerting a similar power i remember that all that they or i possess of goodness we owe to the influence of one true christian 
I am filled with a sublime sense of the value and exalted dignity of virtue. My Stephen's hairs are white, but his heart has known no chill. He loves as fondly as ever the faded face that now, as in its day of bloom, still turns to him for guidance or approval, and I, eternity, could not wear out my love for him. End of section 7